All right. So uh, if you're new to us um, over the past week or two, if it's your first time here, just spend a couple of minutes catching you up on where we've been. So this last fall, we started a series in the book of Exodus, walking from beginning to end all the way through this, this book in Exodus. Um, in the winter time, we took an intentional break to focus on things that we felt we needed to talk about uh, as a church. And then a couple of weeks ago, we re-picked this series back up. And, and so we're right in the middle of this story and we're finishing out um, God's journey with the Israelites. And so um, that, that's where we've been. That's, that's what we're doing. Uh, this book has a simple structure where we watch God walking with his people from death to life. The biggest story that we see in the book of Exodus is, is God going into Egypt where his people, his children are enslaved, and he's going to walk with them, free them from slavery, and walk them into the promised land, walking them from death to life. Um, in the midst of this journey, we have so many micro stories that are happening that God is walking with individuals from death to life. And so the concept is, is, is here over and over and over again. And I think what God really wants to say with us is he wants to um, journey with us as we figure out how to walk from death to life. And so that is our goal this morning as we just open God's word together. Um, a lot of these stories in Exodus, if you grew up and going to the Sunday school, you remember those felt boards, right, where um, you have little animals and stuff that you put on the felt boards and you yank off, and then, you know, the, 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 fun, the fun storytelling. A lot of these stories in Exodus are put on the felt board, right? So you have the burning bush story. You have the, uh, um, the splitting of the Red Sea story. You have, you can just go on and on and on, right? Well, today's text that we're going to be diving through is not one of those stories. Um, <laughs> And it's actually one of the, we're going to journey through five chapters of the book of Exodus today. And, and it's one of these things that when you get to, when you're reading it from cover to cover, you get to these five chapters and you speed up your reading process, right? Just to be able to say you've gotten through it, check mark the box, done. Um, there's a lot of information here. And, and, and the reality is, is that when we speed through this information, it's not hard information, but um, there's a lot of detail that we don't know or we don't see that it's important for us today, so we just get through it. But the reality is, is when you slow down a little bit and you're able to see what, what God's doing in the midst of this, there actually is some implications for us today. And, and I want us to, to be able to, to see that. So in some ways, uh, no apology made, but in some ways today might feel a little bit different. Um, it, today's going to be more of a teaching. We're going to share stories. We're going to give details. I'm going to show pictures. I want to, to paint a picture in our mind of what God is doing inside the book of Exodus today. And, and, and then I want to make this big Jesus connection that I, I don't think is very far of a stretch that, that the intentionality of God in the midst of all of this. So um, as we dive in, you can turn to your, uh, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, so we're going to be in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. We'll skip 28 and 29, save that for next week, little cliffhanger. And then we're going to jump into 30 and 31 and just see something that God is doing there. But I'm going to save the big idea for just a couple of minutes. All right, question for you. Have you ever had something been given something or seen something that you thought was worthless, but actually ended up being amazing. 
It's funny that in relationships, sometimes we meet people. It's funny we can put people in this category, right? But we meet people, and our first impression is one thing or another. We don't connect with that person. They have a brash personality. They're, they're, they're just not someone that I can see myself being friends with, right? Um, within, I read something a couple of weeks ago that within 10 seconds of meeting someone, there's like a list of seven or eight things that we've already determined about a person, right? First impressions, a lot of times, our first impressions are wrong. We, we put someone in the category, we would never be friends with that person because of X, Y, Z, but they end up becoming our best friends or someone we relate with often and frequently. Something that we see as potentially worthless that actually ends up being really exciting and beneficial to your life. Um, if it's not a relationship, maybe it's something you've been handed down. Have you ever been handed down something old from your parents? Let's just stop there. Confession time. Have you ever been handed down something old from your parents, period? Like, what do you do with that thing? Like, that's a genuine question because I don't know what, never mind. Okay, we won't get into that. Um, like, do you have parents that are collectors? Like, people that just like to collect knickknacks, you know? My, my mom's, you walk into her house, my mom and my dad's house, and it's like a, a, a china shop of random collected knickknacks everywhere. I love her for it. Like, like history is so important to her. She'll make giant journeys to get historical things that mean something to her and put all over her house. And I'm, I'm scared that those are going to become mine someday. Um, no, I didn't say that. Is that recorded? Okay. Sorry. Um, no, but seriously, you might be handed down something old from your parents or something and you see it as junk, but it may end up be worth worth a fortune. A lot of times we're handed out stuff and it just has sentimental value, not really monetary value, but sometimes those things are actually worth a ton. Believe it or not, in 1997, PBS brought a show out called the Antiques Roadshow. You familiar? Bring out your junk and we're going to assess it to tell you if it's worth anything or not, right? Um, Look at the line of people that have just, like, that guy has a tote, and I, I could buy that from Walmart for $2.97, but I, maybe, maybe there's something really precious inside of it. I don't want to make fun of him. Um, I just did, but I don't, um, I'm not going to make fun of anyone else. Um, but this is what people do, and I, I would love to see a stat with this Antiques Roadshow, right, to how many things that, that are actually valuable versus things that are like, eh, that's not worth anything, right? Um, but it's kind of fun to, to, to play a little game together, so I, I did some research, and, and you get to do this in your head, right? So we have a table. I, I got three items that I want to show you. Um, there's a table, right? So this lady said she bought this table at a garage sale for $25. She did make a note that it was listed for $30, and she talked the person down to $25. And so she brought it over to um, the Antique Roadshow. I don't know why she decided to do that. But can you guess how much that this table actually sold for in an auction? $541,500. Okay. Yeah, makes you look at your tables a little differently, right? Um, go home, look at your junk, and be able to take it. So, okay, um, two more items. So now we have this 18th century Chinese jade carvings. Um, I don't know if you can see the details in this. My parents have some types of carvings like this in their house. I guarantee it's nothing like this. But that's, this, these are the kind of things that just show up in our parents' house, right, that get handed down to us. Someone brought all four of these pieces. Uh, this, this lady's dad purchased them in 1940. Didn't say how much that he purchased them for. How much can you guess that they actually got appraised for? Over one million dollars. Okay, all right. Um, 
last, I swear this is the last one. Yes, you're at church on Sunday morning and we're playing this game, but okay, here we go. Um, a pocket watch. This is the, um, this thing is like, uh, as far as what I saw, this is the thing that's been valued the most ever on this show, right? This is a pocket watch. It's been passed down from three generations to this guy. He didn't pay anything for it. He got it valued. It did say whenever this thing was made new, like three generations ago, that you could buy them for a couple of thousands, uh, a couple thousand dollars. Like they were really worth something. It's, it's really good pocket watch. Can you guess how much this sold for at auction? Ooh, so close, it's so close. $1.5 million, $1.5 million, right? So, okay, why, why am I really saying all this, right? Um, in, in the midst of my journey and my study and, and, and what we're walking through today, I had an antiques roadshow type moment. You know, that, that something that you just kind of glance through, you, I, I wouldn't say it's junk because it's in the Bible, but I don't put a lot of value on it. And then you open it up and you're like, oh my gosh, God, through the Holy Spirit, just showed me something that just kind of came alive inside this text. And, and I'm really excited about walking through with it. And so um, that, that's really, I, I, I just want us to see something amazing. Um, honestly, I had, a, I had a hard time staying engaged with the text as you're reading through it, because you are slogging along. But God never wastes words in his Bible. In his scripture, mark that down. Like, God never wastes words. He doesn't just use filler words. Everything has intention. Everything has meaning, even if you're unable to see it in the midst of that. So as I study, this is what I saw. I saw the beauty of Jesus in God's design of the tabernacle. These five chapters we're going to see God unpack for us the tabernacle and say, these are the items I want you to create. I want you to make these items. And here's the tent I want you to make. Here's my house. Create it. Put it together. And this is what I want my house to look like. Five chapters of just grueling details on how long things should be, what it should be made of, gold or bronze or silver, how many loops it should have, how it should be folded, how it should be carried, lots of details along the way. But in the midst of it, we see the beauty of Jesus in the midst of God's design for the tabernacle. So I got three things I want us to do. First, I want us to glance through the chapters, and I want us to see these items. Uh, we're not going to read it word for word. I'm going to show you pictures, and I'm going I'm to use story to tell you what's in there that you can look and read on your own to, to see this as well. Secondly, I want us to see how these items are a placeholder for Jesus. Here's where the cool factor comes in to me is, again, God doesn't waste words. And so all of these descriptions, all of these items are a placeholder to who Jesus will be in the future. Then I want to end our time together just looking at uh, how that story of God's design of the tabernacle, these are all placeholders for Jesus, how this impacts us today. And that's really where I want us to go. So the first thing that, that I want us to see in the midst of all this is Okay, let's just look at God's design for the tabernacle. So you got your Bibles, uh, open it up to Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to be reading here in just a minute. What I want us to know going into this is this. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. God is speaking with Moses. He's not with the people, and God has given these instructions. Why is this the big deal? Because the people are always messing things up. But yet God still is saying, I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. He has every reason to pull away from them and say, good luck. If you think you could do it on your own, do it. 
but he never does. He looks for so many different opportunities throughout Scripture to have his spirit dwell with the people so that they know who he is and they know where he is at and they can um, commune, worship, and just see him in a very tangible way. This is a big deal for God to be doing for us. His tabernacle is his house where his presence dwells. This is what this is really all about. Okay, let's look at the first um, nine verses of Exodus 25, one through nine. Let's just see this setup here. So the Lord said to Moses, again, on Mount Sinai, he's talking to Moses, he's unpacking this. He has not given him the Ten Commandments yet, but he says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance of incense, uh, onyx stones and stones for the setting and uh, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly uh, as I have shown you concerning the patterns of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay, God is saying, go to the people, collect all these items. If we were to read these five chapters, you would see these items pop up in every single description between gold and silver and fine yarn. And all of these things have a very intentional purpose. And he wants to collect it from the people and so that they have a contribution in making the house of God. What's the purpose of all this? Look at that verse eight again, just proving my point. Why do all this? Why create the tabernacle? To let, uh, and let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in their midst. Okay, what does all that mean? Let's just unpack that as we just continue to see this together. So keep your Bibles open. We're just going to thumb through this stuff as we go, right? So here's just a general overview of the tabernacle. If you've never seen it before or you've never uh, been able to, to visualize it, this is, it, it's, it's portable, it's mobile. This is not the tabernacle, or this isn't the temple built in Jerusalem. This is out at Mount Sinai. And they were a nomadic people. They were moving around and they stayed places for a long time, but then they would move to a new place. So you start seeing all these poles and these rings because God intentionally said, I want you to move, be able to move this stuff from point A to point B. So you got the outer walls, right? So the thing on the, uh, on the right side there, that's the altar. Then you got the washing basin right there in the middle. You got the, the, the tent itself, the tent of meetings or the physical tabernacle. All of these things are really important and God's going to go into great detail of this. So the first item that he talks about, if you look, uh, continue on Exodus 25, starting in verse 10, you look at, you see the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is the first item that God describes that he wants built. Exact size to the exact specifications, all the details. That God, this isn't just some artist's rendering of what they thought it might look like. They used the details that God gave them because God gave very specific details. There are poles 
that go into it. This is the only item, as you read, that have the poles that slide into it that never are removed from it. The poles are to remain in the Ark of the Covenant for forever. And if, you're, if you can fast forward to another story of, of, of David and, and other people who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, you may know or you may remember, like this is a holy thing that was created for the presence of God that we'll talk about in a second, that if any human hands were to touch the Ark of the Covenant, those people would die right? So these poles are to never be removed. They're to stay in there the entire time. Now, where do you put this? We'll see in a minute that inside the temple, there are two rooms. One's called the holy place, and the other is called the most holy place. The holy place is the front room where people are. Then there's a veil that is beautiful, that is created to separate that holy place from the most holy place. And the only thing that's inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Why is this important? Because that is where God's presence dwells. In the midst of the description, he tells, um, he tells Moses to on the lid to create cherubim, which are angels, we see biblically these angels uh, are, are solely responsible for the praise and the worship of God. They, they, they declared the greatness of God. So God said, create these cherubim that are looking at each other and their wings are stretched forward and they're touching one another. And they're creating this thing that God calls the mercy seat. This is God's throne. This is where his presence sits and his presence dwells is on top of that mercy seat. This is supposed to be one piece. These two angels come together are supposed to be made of one piece of gold, not two different pieces. This is the throne of God. Verse 22 says of um, Exodus 5, sorry, Exodus 25, verse 22 says, there I will meet with you on top of that mercy seat. God's presence dwelling in that place. Okay. Remember, that's the only thing in the holy of holies, or the most holy place. Now, we're going to jump to the other side of the curtain, and we're going to see something. So um, the, the second thing that's described is the table for bread. So the table for bread, it also has poles in it. You see it, it's made of gold as well. Um, you can remove th those poles. And on top of that table are, are fresh pieces of, of bread, loaves of bread. Um, this text doesn't get, it, get specific into it, but we can see in Leviticus that, um, I don't know if it's daily, but it is regularly, bread is to be made to be put on, um, on the, the bread of the table. And um, 12 loaves are supposed to be there, six on one side, six on the other. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel, so everything is symbolic as it's sitting inside this place. The bread's not supposed to go stale, it's not supposed to go bad, they're supposed to remake it constantly, okay? We, we get a picture of what's going on here? Okay, you guys with me? Check. Okay, cool. Um, if not, we're going to continue anyway. All right, um, all right, so then we, we move over into the next thing um, at the very end of chapter 25, and we're going to talk about the golden lampstand. So this golden lampstand, so the, the, the table for bread is on the north side of the holy place, and on the south side, on the opposite side, is this golden lampstand. So there's supposed to be candles that, that are lit on it, and what God tells the, the priest to do is to never, ever, ever let the light go out inside the tab tabernacle. The tabernacle is never supposed to experience darkness. So keep these candles lit constantly. Be working hard to make sure the, tabernacle, or the, the holy place never ever sees 
darkness. Okay, moving forward. Then we get a bigger description in chapter 26 of the tabernacle. So here's a more close-up version of the tabernacle. What, uh, again, great detail goes into to talking about it. So on the outside are, are the tents. It's made of goat skin and ram skin and all that. That's to protect the stuff that is on the inside. On the inside there, on the far corner, you see the, the holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. The only thing is inside there. Then the larger section is the holy place. So the most holy place the holy place. You see on that north end there, the table for bread. And on the south end, you see the lampstand. Uh, we'll get to the, the, um, the altar for incense is right in front of that veil, right? The veil plays a really important role in the story of Jesus. And we'll get to that. Uh, then on the very front, you see a, um, a, a door going into the, the tent of meetings. What I want just to see is, is God goes into detail in this description on how he wants the veil to be made. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be intertwined with this and with that for these beautiful things and that beautiful things. And he says, put cherubim on the front of it. Put these angelic beings on the front. It plays a significant part that we'll get to later. He also says, not just the veil, but that entrance, that purple entrance, that giant curtain there is supposed to be just as beautiful so much detail into how to create the entrance going into the temple, into, sorry, not the temple, but into the tabernacle, into the tent of meetings. Okay, we got the tabernacle. Now we got the altar, the bronze altar. Um, so it seems like all the things that are outside are created with bronze and all the things that are inside are created with gold, right? So rust, and so you guys can follow along with that, right? So the altar, this is the thing created with, it has four horns on the side, and every time the Israelites were to bring their sacrifices to the priest to have their forgiveness of sins, right? To, um, so that these sacrifices can atone for their sins and God will forgive their sins. This is where the sacrifices are done is on this altar. There's lots of specifi uh, um, specifications. Sorry, that's the word I was looking for. There's lots of specifications um, on, on how to create it so that this can go here and that can go there, right? So that's, that's the, the, the picture of it. The poles are removed. It's to be outside. Um, yeah, that's that. Okay, the courtyard, going back to this picture. <clears throat> The next thing that, that we see uh, in chapter 27, starting in verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me, is the court area. These giant walls that are to surround all of those things. You see where the altar is now. Um, the basin that we're going to talk about here in a second is in between the things. But you got these giant walls. And um, he goes into detail here in chapter 27 as far as what the, the door to the place looks like. If you notice, it's purple, and it has the same kind of intertwined things that is um, to the door of the tent of meetings, and also that's given into the, the veil that is in um, the holy place going into the most holy place. I think that is very significant on how much beauty is put on that door. Okay. Um, and then we get to chapter 28. So chapter 28 and 29, we'll talk about next week, but this gets into the priests and what the priests are to do, what they're to wear, what they're to look like, the consecration of these priests, that plays a really significant part, but we're going to skip over that now, 28 and 29, we'll come back to that next week. Um, I think it's intentional that there's a break there, and then we get into these last two items, but these last two items are this, the altar of incense. The altar of incense are supposed to be in front of the veil, right in front of it, Incense is to constantly be burning. 
This whole idea of smoke uh, represents the prayers of the people going up to God. That's what uh, biblically that, uh, and, and historically, that's what that has represented. And so um, this altar of incense is supposed to be there, and incense is supposed to be burning constantly. Last, but certainly not least, the bronze basin. This is for washing. So this is intentionally supposed to sit between the altar where sacrifices are made and the tent. This basin for washing. And the text goes into detail that the priest is supposed to wash their hands and wash their feet every time they, come, they, they do a sacrifice. And then they wash their hands and they wash their feet before they go into the temple. Specific things, but I hope for us to see something so much more than just detail here in a couple of minutes. All right, detail. Any questions? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, too many of us to take questions. Second thing, how are these items placeholders for Jesus? Here's the argument that I don't think I have to work too hard at to convince you of, but maybe I do. Here's what I want to convince you of, though. Every covenant given in the Bible, every historical story, such as David and Goliath, or Jonah and the whale, or Daniel and the lion's den, so every covenant given, every historical story, and every detail of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, foreshadow the coming of Christ. All of them tell a bigger story than just the story that we read and put on felt boards in Sunday school, which are great, right? They, they help bring them into our memory. But as we get older, we can see the implications of who Jesus is in the midst of it. Jesus is the absolute center figure of all of Scripture, and he is never God's plan B whenever man and woman screwed up at the very beginning. He has always had the intention, and we see his story, God's story unfold, illuminating who Christ is in the midst of everything that he has done. And this is absolutely huge. And this is part of my antique roadshow moments as we went through this together. There's Christocentric meaning in the tabernacle being built. Um, just got done teaching through a series in our youth ministry on the seven I am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. And I think that, that, that God has done something to connect those I am statements to the tabernacle. It seemed like a stretch at first for me, but then let's just, let me walk you through my journey, okay? So these seven I am statements are intentional statements that Jesus makes about himself in the book of John all started with John chapter 8, where Jesus calls himself the I am. Before Abraham was, I am. If we know our Bible, that connects all the way back to Exodus, right? When, when God was talking to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Jesus is calling himself Yahweh in the book of John, and then he used these really intentional seven I am statements to say, I am God. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a good man. I am God. And I am a benefit for you in your life if you surrender to me. That's what all these seven I am statements really do. So you, if you look at these, Jesus says intentionally, I am the bread of life. 
connected back to the story. So when we look in John chapter 6, we see the story of, of, um, of feeding the 5,000. Right after the story of feeding the 5,000, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then we get to John chapter 8. At the, um, John chapter 8, verse 1, we see a really unique story of this adulterous woman, a woman who's caught in adultery, where these Pharisees want to stone her and kill her. They try to trap Jesus in the midst of this story, and they say, Jesus, what should we do with her? The law says we should kill her. Are you going to have mercy or are you going to kill her? Then what Jesus does is miraculous, right? Uh, maybe you know the story. Maybe you don't. Go read it on your own. It's fascinating. But at the end of it, this, the, the woman is redeemed. Her sin is cast away from her, and the people who want to kill her are no more. Then Jesus goes into John chapter 8, verse 12 to say, I am the light of the world. I expose darkness. And just like this lady has darkness in her past, being an adulterous woman, her sin is her darkness. I have exposed that, and she is now free and forgiven. I am the light of the world. Then we get to um, John chapter 10, which we get I am the door and I am the good shepherd, all within the same story of Jesus making this connection of what it means to be a shepherd and what it means to be a sheep. So sheep have these pens that have one door, in and out, and Jesus says, I am that door. Eternal life happens whenever you come in me. Then we get to John 10, 10, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give life into what? Get, we're asleep, aren't we? Okay, um, I've... I've come to give life and to give it to abundantly to the full, right? So inside the, the sheep's pen is safety because the walls are high. There's only one way in. If someone comes over the walls, they're coming in for bad reasons. God said, I'm giving you protection. I'm giving you safety. And he says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. My sheep know my voice and I know theirs and we are a family together. But more than that, I laid down my life for those sheep. In John chapter 14, 6, he gets to... I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right before he says that, he says, I'm about to go to heaven to prepare a place for you. My father's house has many, many, many rooms, and in those rooms, there's a place for you to live. There's a place for you to dwell. And if you want to get to that place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the vine. I am the true vine. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For without me, you could do nothing. Jesus paints his picture of what it looks like to abide in him. And if you don't bear fruit, you're not part of him and you are cut off and you are burned at, um, in, in, the, at, in the chaff, right? But if you are attached to him, you will bear much fruit. And he's going to prune you and it's going to be potentially painful because pruning is painful, but it's absolutely beautiful in the midst of it. Jesus says, I am that vine that you are connected to. Lastly, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. Connected to a much larger story, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. A huge deal, right? And when we, he sees his best friend being raised from the dead, then he makes this comment, why are you questioning me? Because I am the resurrection and I am the life, which has dual meanings, right? Absolutely, when we die, we will be resurrected just like Jesus. But more important than that, here on life, uh, here on earth, we have we are risen from death to life spiritually here. So we're not just waiting for the moment we die. We are live in this moment where we get to experience God's beauty and God's goodness as He is our resurrection and life right now as well as in the future. Okay. How does all this connect to the temple? <laughs> Roll with me. What's one of the first items that we see? The table for bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
And this bread is to be in the midst of this temple. God created this table and put the bread out there who is to constantly never be eaten. You can never eat it. It has to be getting rid of and it's constantly fresh. And it's a symbol. What's it there for? Is it just for the 12 tribes of Israel? Or is there something larger there? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. We got the lampstand. That is to never go out. The priests are to always keep it lit. Darkness is never supposed to enter into the, 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 um, the tabernacle at all. Yet Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I expose darkness. We got the entrance into the tent, into the tabernacle that God puts so much detail into to say, this is the beautiful way that you come into my tabernacle, into my presence. Yes, you come into the courtyard and you enter into my house. Now you're in my presence as you walk through the tabernacle, those beautiful doors. And Jesus is saying, I'm the door. I'm the way into heaven. I am the way into eternal life. I'm the way into the presence of God. Just as he says, I am the door. The altar. What's the altar all about? To receive the sacrifices of the sacrificial lamb to cover the blood of us. How is that not reflective of Jesus whenever he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep? Jesus saying, there's a room prepared for you with many, many, many rooms and I'm the way, the truth, and the life as you walk through the courtyard into my father's house, that door that I spent so much time saying is beautiful and enter in through, Jesus is that way. Sixth, and the true vine. So between, um, between the way, the truth, and life and the true vine, that's where the priests come in. That's where we get the description of the priests, right, in chapters 28 and 29. Then we have the the altar of incense as well as the the washing basin. I'm going to argue that that the first five, Jesus, are these items, and now Jesus is the representation of the priests in the midst of this. I'm the true vine. The priest is the one who is to go in and keep the incense burning, to keep the prayers going before God. And, and we're going to see in Hebrews in a couple of minutes that, 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 that altar of incense actually sometimes shows up inside of the holy of holy place as well as on the outside. There's lots of controversy on, on why and when and how and all that. We just see that it's happening there. So we see it on both sides, right? So Jesus is saying that I am the true vine. Jesus is saying I'm the one who's advocating for you to be connected to the Father. Through me, you're connected to something so much bigger than yourself. Without me and my, and my prayers, side note, on John 15, where we talk about the true vine, what we see right before that is the introduction of the Holy Spirit, saying the Holy Spirit's gonna come as a counselor. So if the Holy Spirit's connected to Jesus being the true vine, the Holy Spirit is the one that's connecting us between us and the Father. And last but certainly not least is the resurrection and the life, that basin outside. Jesus is the priest who washes us, washes us with his word, washes us with the Holy Spirit. And how do we represent that as followers of Jesus? Through baptism, right? We receive the baptism of Jesus to bring life. Jesus is the priest that watches us, washes us. Okay. How does this make Jesus ultimately beautiful. If you got your Bibles, follow with me to Hebrews chapter 9. 
Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus is absolutely connected to the tabernacle. We're going to see it. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Even now, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For the tent was prepared. The first section, in it were the lampstand and the, uh, and the table for bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. So inside the, the covenant was this manna um, that God gave the people to eat in the wilderness uh, and Aaron's staff that budded. It's not a story we're getting into, but it's, it's a biblical story. You can read it and what that is really all about. And the, ta- the, um, the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, are to be inside the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5, above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat and the things that we cannot speak of in detail. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties uh, and into the second sections uh, only the high priest can go into the most holy place and once a year um, and not without taking blood so then he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people by the holy spirit indicates that there's a way into the holy place that is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing okay blood would be brought into the holy place, but then once a year, blood would be brought into the most holy place from the sacrifices, and it would be sprinkled all over the walls so that the nation for the unintentional sins would be forgiven, right? So we still have this division of holy and most holy. Let's, uh, sorry, uh, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot um, perfect the conscience of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, let's get into Jesus. Verse 11. Um, actually, let's, let's skip down. That's really good stuff, but that's... Yeah, that gets into detail. I don't want you to see. Let's skip down to verse 23. But it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy place. Um, sorry, has, uh, for Christ has entered not into the holy place with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into the heaven, heavens itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it the, to offer himself repeatedly uh, as the high priest enters into the holy place, uh, holy places ever, every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has separated once and for all uh, at the end of the ages to be put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as Jesus has appointed for man to die once after he comes into judgment, and so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. Okay. 
what does all this mean for me? Going back to the tabernacle itself, God always looked for ways to be with his people. God lived with them in the only way that was appropriate through this tabernacle that he just built. In the midst of giving all of these instructions for his house, he used objects to tell how important his son was going to be in the midst of all of that. Do you remember through the descriptions, the cherubim that were on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that were on the door uh, or on the, the veil itself? Where else do we see cherubim inside of Scripture? We get all the way from Genesis 3.24. We go back to Genesis 3.24. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God has put cherubim outside the tree of life to protect the tree of life. And he sent cherubim to stand in front of it with flaming swords so that Adam and Eve could not eat of that. So what I want you to see in the midst of that is both judgment and mercy. They have sinned and they cannot eat from this tree. So these cherubim represent judgment. You cannot come close. If you come close, you will die. But it's mercy because what does that tree offer to do? The tree of life provides eternal life. God knew that Adam and Eve had broken the covenant that he has with them, that they are now sinful. And if they eat from the tree of life, they will live forever inside this eternal state of brokenness. And God says, absolutely, I will not allow that because you need to die on this earth so that you could be redeemed with me. So both judgment and mercy inside of the story of cherubim protecting the tree of life. Now we see it also at the temple the cherubim are built on top of the, the veil. It's mercy. The place of God's throne. So on the mercy seat itself, the place where God's throne is, it's a place where he dwells with us. But the cherubim are on the outside of the veil protecting the, holy, the most holy place. You cannot come into this place or you will die. But that's not the end of the story. That, that's the way it was lived out for 1,500 years. Between the time that Moses set it out on, uh, to, to play to the time that Jesus came, this is the way that Israelites functioned. Judgment. But judgment was satisfied whenever Christ died on the cross. The story unfolds and the veil is ripped in two. And it opened the way for us to be able to go into the most holy place, into God's presence because of the sacrifice that has been poured out on us. Jesus is the great I am. Through his death, he ripped the veil in two, opening the door, and we get to have relationship with God. That's why this is significant. This cross that's standing on our stage with the sins of us littered on the bottom of it, this is real life. We are real people coming into this place needing 
the mercy of God, and we get to live underneath the cross and just say to the world, how beautiful is this thing that I didn't do for myself, but God has done through me, through his son, Jesus Christ, that I could stand forgiven and redeemed because of what he accomplished on this cross that we're journeying to together on Easter Sunday morning. Man, this is, this is the beauty of the temple where God says, this is the right now for them, but something is coming so much greater. Okay, as I turn this and wrap it up, if you had a table that you brought to the Antiques Roadshow that was appraised and you found out it was worth a million dollars, what would you do? Would you ignore it, take it back home, and keep eating off of it like you were before, like, oh, that's good information. <laughs> Would you sell it and spend the money to upgrade your life? Or would you sell it and impact people's lives around you? Again, we've just seen 1,500 years in the making there were 1,500 years between the time the tabernacle was created and Jesus came on the on this scene. The mystery that God says in his word is a mystery. The mystery of how God was going to redeem people to himself has now been disclosed, and it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus unites you. It unites me to God the Father. What are you going to do with this information? You've just been handed down a table that's worth a million dollars. Are you going to say that's good information? I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. Or are you going to be rocked to the core what the God of the universe has done for us to redeem us to himself and he has given us more value than we could ever see? Are we going to take that story and apply it to make ourselves great, to benefit us, and use Jesus to make our lives better, interact with him when we want him, when we need him, when we're fearful? Or are we going to use that grand master story to love God and love others? Where in the midst of it, the beauty of when you're loving God and loving others and you're making others better around you, you get the benefit of that as well. And so you get part B and part A all together when your sights are on the right things. So when the gospel of Jesus Christ has been so clearly seen throughout God's story, not just what I'm trying to say, but God saying that this was always what I intended, always who I am, this is the beauty of Jesus, even in the midst of the Old Testament stories. Do you see it or do you not? Do you see what I've done for you? And for you to go, oh my gosh, this is an antiques roadshow moment to where what am I going to do with this thing? I, I hope that we get to make other people's lives better around us because of who Jesus is. Because that's what happens when we live our faith in Jesus out loud. We're not trying to make converts. We're just declaring the things that are real to us. We're declaring our reality. Are you doing that through the way that you live? I hope that we are. I hope that we see it. 
I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team on stage. And, and as we close our service, we just get to declare back to God all of these things of who he is for us in these moments. I just want to invite you to sing and to sing proud and to sing loud and to be able to just, like the cherubim, worship and praise of God. Be the holy choir of God in the midst of who he is. And yeah, just keep bringing sins up. If you've got something you want to write down, this is going to be open for the next six weeks. So just bring it on up. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our lives, for showing us who you are. Forgive me for my laziness at times to just go through the motions and do this and to do that and to take you for granted. God, that's human nature. It's what we all do from time to time for this reason or for that. God, we all do that, but that's no excuse. My confession is that, that I'm in the midst of that story. and I want you to make yourself known through me. I want others to see you through me as I just want to live out loud for you. May that be our journey and our story as we see yourself in the midst of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.